It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Smith rifles that one to Mims. And that's a foot race. He's going to win. Touchdown, Baylor. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Five straight games, Anthony, where he's got a touchdown catch of over 20. That's to the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Donald escapes, trying to buy himself some time, fires, end zone, it's caught. Incredible play by Donald. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know and that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studio, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's time for part two of Midweek with Manish. So much to cover because there's actual news for the first time in a while. A ton of it revolves around Jamal Adams. So we talked about that a little bit yesterday. But I really wanted to dive in depth in part two. So, of course, Manish Mehta from the New York Daily News is here to do that. Manish, you ready for a little battle here? Yeah, I have a feeling that you and I don't necessarily see eye-to-eye on uh, the Jamal Adams uh, saga, if you will. Manish, here's how I want to do this. I'm going to let you lay things out the way that you reported it and how you see the story. And then I'm going to jump in and talk about where I disagree with you, and then we'll go back and forth on that. But before we do that, like I said, I want you to lay it out as you understand it. Uh, Sure. Uh, Jamal Adams... uh wanted a new contract uh, with the New York Jets, uh, knowing full well that you know, he didn't actually like or respect his head coach. Uh, sometimes you can see past that, especially in the, the way that the Jets have it set up, uh, where Greg Williams is the, the head coach of the defense. He's the guy that Jamal Adams and the rest of the defensive players uh, deal with predominantly. Uh, that being said, you, you still need somebody – overseeing the entire operation. You need somebody to be your leader, uh, even if you're not necessarily uh, dealing with them a lot during the course of the week. Uh, you still need somebody that you respect to kind of guide the ship, even though they're not your day-to-day contact, if that makes any sense. So uh, I think Jamal Adams is willing to overlook Adam Gase's shortcomings. Uh, but once uh, it became evident in May, I believe, that he wasn't going to get a contract extension, I think that's when Joe Douglas conveyed it to him. Uh, you know, he, I think he, he just kind of surveyed the landscape like, wow, you know what? I'm going to be playing for a bad team, for a coach I do not like or respect. Uh, and, and and on top of all that, I'm not going to get paid. So this is not an environment that uh, I particularly want to be in after uh, six months of stonewalling, making excuses, and then ultimately not coming through. And then ultimately, obviously, uh, I probably – buried the lead here but uh, i know that one thing that bothered jamal uh was his integrity being questioned you know being asked by the general manager uh to prove his worth to an organization that frankly does not deserve the benefit of the doubt you know you're not proving your worth the new england patriots or some kind of historic franchise like the the pittsburgh steelers Uh, these are the new york jets and this was a player who had uh you know been extremely productive for three seasons. Been the cap, uh, been a captain, I should say, uh, the clear leader on defense, one of the leaders of the team as a whole. And uh, I think that was a slap in the face 
to say that you have to prove your loyalty. And by the way, we're tabling these contract discussions. And in the interim, we're going to monitor you uh, to see if you're all in with football. Uh, and you say what you want about Jamal Adams, uh, you know, about his social media behavior, about him wanting money, about him calling out the coach, general manager, what, what, what have you. But there's nobody in this discussion, whether you're glad Jamal's gone or whether you think Jamal's a baby or whether you think that the Jets uh, did a disservice by not keeping one of their best players. There's nobody on any side of the discussion that would argue that Jamal, Jamal Adams is all in with football, that he loves football. I mean, that to me was probably the one of the stranger things uh, that came out of this. Uh, I don't think Jamal Adams needs to prove anything to anyone about his dedication to football. Uh, and, and look, if I, if I think that's strange, imagine how the players think. So uh, I just, you know, we can go, you know, we can go by month by month after the season uh, if you want. But I would just say this. Uh, if you just take the name Jamal Adams out of this discussion and you take out this whole sports backdrop out of the discussion and put it in this context, if you are the most productive employee uh, in your company and your boss tells you that, you know what, I'm going to talk to my boss and we're going to come up with an idea to get you some more money. And that, you know, you obviously feel great about that, but then you know, that, that that raise never comes, and your boss keeps stonewalling. What I mean by that, you know, keeps pushing it off and keeps making other excuses as to why you haven't that, gotten that raise, and then, you know, three or four or five months later says, you know what, it turns out we're not going to give you a raise, uh, but we'll revisit it a year from now. And in the interim, you have to prove that uh, you're a good employee. When you had already proven by your production in a number of different ways that you were a great employee. I think that in that scenario, most, if not all, people would be offended. Uh, and that's kind of how I viewed this whole thing. I kind of took sports out of the equation. And I know that you can't really do that because the money is so different in real life versus in the sports universe. But I looked at it, you know, just through that lens, uh, you know, out of sports. And if you were a productive employee, how would you feel if this kind of went uh, this is kind of how things went down. Uh, now, that albeit that being said, Joe Douglas did say that he believed he thought he believed that his communication with Jamal Adams in his camp was clear, that there wasn't this ambiguity, and he also did say that he did not make any promises of uh, any kind of uh, initial offer. And I think really, Scott, and I mean, I know you're going to have your strong opinions about this, but I really think that's at the crux of the issue. That's why the, the, the trust was fractured. The communication was terrible. So if one side you know, believes that this is happening and another side believes that something else is happening and both sides believe that the communication is clear on their end, but it's two different viewpoints, then clearly the communication is terrible. And that's, the breakdown in communication is what led to all of this. Neither one of the – neither one – uh, uh, you know, between the Jamal Adams camp and and the Jets, they weren't on the same page a at all. And we can get into different reasons why they weren't on the same page. We can also get into different reasons why the Jets didn't ultimately uh, make Jamal an offer, because uh, I do want to talk about that, about the cash flow restrictions that you and I have touched on on previous podcasts. But I do want to get into that at some point. But, uh, you know, I've spoken too much. You go ahead and tell me what your position is, because, you know, as you know, as I understand it, that's how things unfolded over the last six or so months. 
While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Let's start with the beginning of this. This all began around the trade deadline because reports came out that the Jets were listening to offers from teams who had called about Jamal Adams, specifically the Dallas Cowboys, although we did find out later that there were other teams that called and made offers, including the Baltimore Ravens. At the time, Jamal Adams came out and said he was incensed, he was offended, he couldn't believe that the general manager would shop him like that, said that he's the franchise player, you wouldn't shop Tom Brady or Aaron Donald, And he was completely incredulous about all of this. Well, at the time, and I said this on the podcast, I heard from somebody who generally has very good information that Jamal Adams' people were working behind the scenes to engineer a deal out of New York, that he didn't want to be here anymore for whatever reasons. As you said, I'm sure he wasn't thrilled with Gase, but it seems like a lot of it had to do with the fact that he didn't like losing. He was 16-32 and the three years he was here, it wasn't 16 and 32 yet at this point, but it was veering in that direction and actually worse because at that point they hadn't gone on that run at the end of the season. So he wanted to get out and the Cowboys were his preferred destination. This was backed up by a report within the last few days by Ian Rappaport, who said that Jamal Adams was back channeling with players on the Cowboys to try and get out of New York. So before we get into anything else, his entire act was exactly that. 
an act. He was not upset that the Jets were quote-unquote shopping him because they weren't. They were taking offers when teams called. Teams called because there was back-channeling being done by Adams himself and his agents. I'd heard it at the time, and now Ian Rappaport, who I think we can both agree is very credible, is coming out and saying the same thing. On top of that, you heard Ryan Clark, who is his mouthpiece. We all know it. They're friends. They both are LSU guys. He came out on TV and was sending smoke signals to the Cowboys. And then after that, he came out and trashed Sam Darnold, saying, how could you shop a guy like Jamal Adams? You need to shop Sam Darnold. And then went on to talk about how he doesn't think Sam Darnold is really any good. Clark said that? I missed it. I totally missed it. I don't remember that at all. Yes, Ryan Clark trashed Sam Darnold. He got a lot of flack for it. Okay, well, okay. before you continue, let, 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 me, just, let me just say this. Uh, I can assure you that Jamal Adams thinks that Sam Darnold has an extremely bright future. I can't speak for Jamal Adams, but all I can tell you is that when his mouthpiece goes on TV and starts saying that, what it makes me think is that perhaps Adams was thinking... We've done a lot of losing. I'm not really fond of this Gase guy, but Darnold is the man, and he's going to lead us back out of this, and we're going to be good. But then he started to waver, especially after Darnold had those struggles, the seeing ghost game being one of them. And then I think at that point, it started to pop into his head, oh, no, I'm going to do nothing but lose the next few years. This team isn't close to really competing. I don't want to spend my prime years here in New York. I thought Darnold would be the guy to lead us out of this. Now I don't think he is. Get me out of here. So that's the impression that I got. But I think everything that went on leading up to that trade deadline nonsense has now been shown to be more or less an act. And I know that you're going to disagree, and that's fine. We can disagree on this. But I always felt that as John Grella, who is a three-year communications director for the Buccaneers and has a nose for this type of BS because he had to deal with it for three years, said on this podcast right when it was going on, Jamal Adams was angry, but he wasn't angry because Joe Douglas took phone calls. He was angry because Joe Douglas didn't actually trade him. Okay. What I will say about the Ian Rappaport uh, report is that my understanding is that Jamal Adams, as as he said publicly, I believe, you know, he was upset that the Jets were shopping him. Uh, the Jets were not shopping him. And I know there's like semantics involved in there, but it's not as if there uh, there was a you know a neon light or neon light shining from one Jets drive saying, hey, you know, come get Jamal Adams. Uh, my understanding is that Joe Douglas did not initiate the calls. However, he absolutely negotiated with teams that were interested. So it wasn't as if he took a call, he took an offer, and said, thank you for your time, and then got off the phone. And I think that is what bothered Jamal Adams, is that the general manager was engaged in negotiations. And at that point, in his mind, he's he's thinking shopping. I don't view that as shopping a player. I view that as you're interested in trading the player, and you are actually – engaged in a back-and-forth. And the back-and-forth alone was enough for Jamal Adams to say, if they don't value me uh, enough where they're you know, just listening to what people are saying and saying no thanks, if they're actually like being proactive uh, after that initial call and saying, no, well, how about this? Maybe would you do it for this? Uh, if you threw in this pick or this player, uh, would you do that for Jamal? I think once that started happening, that is when Jamal Adams said, you know what, uh, I'm from Dallas. I'd love to play for Dallas. 
if you're if you're going to talk to Dallas and engage in conversations with Dallas, then let's let's make everybody happy. You can trade me to Dallas. I'll go there happily. You'll get whatever you want in return. So that's just my understanding. I mean, people might have the timing might be different for other people. Uh, I don't think it was simply that uh, Jamal Adams got a whiff that the Cowboys called and then went on a rampage to to everybody he knows in Dallas and says, hey, you know, trade for me. I, I think this happened while Joe Douglas was engaged in conversation. So, look, there's some nuance there. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if, we'll, if anyone will definitively know the timing of it, but that was always my understanding, was that Joe Douglas was, in fact, engaged in negotiations. I've always believed, and I know this is the case, I've always believed this notion that I'm going to pick up a phone call. That narrative is BS. That's not true. It's like, yes. He picked up the phone when teams called, but then he actively engaged in conversation, which he should do. There's nothing wrong with that. I think a general manager should do that. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Jamal Adams obviously disagrees with me on that point, but uh, I don't think that Joe Douglas would be doing his job if he didn't engage in conversation. Now, Joe publicly has said that he doesn't think he'd be doing his job properly if he didn't pick up the phone. I mean, he left out another part of what actually happened, which is that he picked up the phone, listened to the offers, and then offered counters. So, uh, again, you know, we're kind of getting in the weeds here. I know that's what you wanted to do, but that was my understanding in terms of uh, the, the Ian Rappaport report that came out a few days ago. Two things. First of all, that seems like a convenient narrative that Adams is spinning now. But, again, in addition to the Rappaport report, you had Ryan Clark going on TV the morning of the trade deadline to send out smoke signals to Dallas. I had heard, and several other people have heard this as well, that there was back-channeling going on because Adams was looking to get out of New York, and this was all before Douglas took the calls. And by the way, as you said, Manish, Douglas did absolutely nothing wrong. He should have taken the calls, and he should have been willing to hear people out and be willing to go back and forth because the Jets are not a team that is in position to make any player completely untouchable. They have a million holes on this team in important spots. Mike McCagney left this roster an absolute mess, and so if they could get a King's Ransom like they ultimately did, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, for a guy who is an outstanding player, but as Mike Lombardi said, not somebody that is a pass rusher, at least not on a full-time basis, and not somebody that's going to lock down an opposing number one receiver, you absolutely have to listen if somebody wants to blow you out of the water and be willing to go back and forth if they make an offer that you think you can turn into something that will be an offer that will blow you out of the water. So for Adams to not understand that or to, as I think really was the case, act all indignant about what he knows is just business is incredibly bizarre and I think disingenuous. And then we get to the whole thing about Jamal Adams being this incredible leader. A couple things about that. First of all, he's such an incredible leader that he goes out and starts talking about this stuff publicly, trashing the general manager on social media, and then on top of that, more or less dogs the next two games, including that Miami Dolphins game. We all saw it, Manish. We all saw what he did. He was not out there giving it his best. He was pouting. That's not what a leader does. I think he wants people to think he's a leader. That's his gimmick. But in reality, leaders don't go out there and do that. We all saw what he did in the Miami game. Like, honestly, you're talking about the home Miami game? 
It was the first game against Miami, the one on the road that they lost at the beginning of November. I promise you a lot of Jets fans remember that game and Jamal's performance in particular. I can bring Michael Nania or Joe Blewett on the show if you like to talk about it because they broke down the film extensively. And just one example of what I'm talking about is that play where Preston Williams caught a pass for a touchdown where Jamal Adams didn't even cover him. It looked like it completely gave up on an underneath route. I'm pretty sure that Jamal Adams was not loafing. But, hey, look, we, we can disagree on that. That's fine. Like, the guy, nobody works harder than him. And in terms of being a leader, all I can go – and here's the thing. I'm not a New York Jet player, okay? I, I, I'm not a player. I'm not a coach. I talk to players and coaches on the team. And I have never heard one person say that he's not a leader. I mean, that's all I can go by. I mean, I cannot Has go by anything else. one of them spoke up about what an incredible leader he is, though? I don't talk to 65 people. Manish. He's a leader on the team. I didn't make him the leader. I understand that, Manish, but just because players didn't come out and say he's not a great leader doesn't mean they all think oh, he is God. one. You know what, Scott? I have to read a text. I'm going to read a text to you. I mean, this go is ahead. like, I understand that Jamal Adams did not comport himself the way that fans wanted to comport, that they, they wanted him to comport himself as on Twitter, on social media the last six months. I'm not saying I agree with a lot of the stuff he did on Twitter. In fact, I, I mean, you and I have discussed this. Like, I, I, I hate Twitter. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't quite understand when, you know, younger players go back and forth on Twitter. Like, I, I don't, I can't, there's a disconnect there. I don't understand that. But let me just pull this up. Uh, okay, players are pissed. That's one player saying that. Uh, there's no reason for this player to lie to me. Huge blow for us. Uh, we lost the heart and fabric of the team. I mean, th- these are just people who play with the man. I can just go off of that. Like, I have to, I have to separate player. what I think he did well, like, you know, publicly how he handled it, how he didn't handle it. I have to separate that and trust that the guys who are in the trenches with him and working with him and practicing with him every day, when they say things like that, I – I mean, I got to take it at face value. I mean, I don't really know as a reporter how else to take that type of information. Maybe we should ask Le'Veon Bell about that. But I will say this. I understand that's one player. And I'm not saying Jamal doesn't work hard generally. That's two players. I'm sorry. That Fine, was two, two players. players. Okay. But either way, just because he works hard generally doesn't mean that he wasn't pouting and lollygagging in that Miami game. You can go back and watch it for yourself on the tape, Manish. But what I am saying also here in terms of Jamal as a leader is that I think that a lot of people at this point had had enough of the antics and not just from outside the locker room. Is there any reason why Kim Jones would go out of her way to point out that not a single member of the Jets has publicly said anything to wish Jamal Adams well in Seattle? Well, I can tell you that players and coaches have reached out to Jamal Adams since the trade. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. Uh, I can also tell you, not that, like I said, I hate Twitter, but I think that I think, I think it was Brian Poole. Somebody had some kind of emoji, and people, people at the, in that age range, and the millennials, and I sound like an old man, but they, you know, they, they communicate via emojis. I cannot tell you, and I, I'm like, I'm not arguing with you. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with you. I'm just stating a fact. I cannot tell you why players. I don't even know who who are the most active players on social media. Other, I think Le'Veon is the guy. Maybe because I follow him, Le'Veon Jamal were the guys who were the most active on social media. I know Sam doesn't even have a, a Twitter account. Uh, I don't think Jameson Crowder does. I, I mean, does Chris Herndon even have an account? I mean, these guys. He does. They do? Okay, yeah. I, I don't know how often they tweet. I can't answer your question. I can tell you that I know players who have told me that they've reached out to him. 
privately. I mean, I can't tell you, uh, and I don't think it matters one way or the other what, why a guy hasn't tweeted about Jamal Adams. I don't think that's an indictment on Jamal Adams. Not I mean, if that, it's look, one guy. Like I said, I'm not, fight, I'm not fighting with you. I'm just telling you I can't understand it. I don't understand it, actually. Listen, I'm not saying that if it's one guy, it's a big deal, but nobody in the locker room has said anything publicly, which is just weird to me. It doesn't necessarily prove anything, but it is a little odd. I haven't checked the former Jets. I think there's like, what, 20 guys who aren't on the team anymore, 25 guys. Uh, they were teammates of his last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also that. So that would, you know, I think there's like, how many new guys are on the team? 15, 20? So like basically a third of the team, a quarter to a third of the team is new. Probably don't even know Jamal Adams uh, other than, you know, by name. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that, like, I really do think it's unfair. Uh, and, look, you have a lot of valid points. I disagree with Jamal on a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's unfair to say now that he wasn't a leader when the reality over the last three years is that he absolutely was a leader. I'm not saying he wasn't a leader. I'm saying I don't think that he was anywhere near this amazing leader that he was painted out to be, or actually, more succinctly, that he painted himself out to be. Maybe we should talk to Le'Veon Bell about this. We saw what happened there. Does a guy who's this amazing leader do what he did, leave Le'Veon Bell in the dust, and then essentially just say noted, see you week 14, after Le'Veon Bell, by the way, went out of his way to defend Jamal Adams publicly multiple times, and you could tell that Le'Veon Bell was not happy about this. By the way, we know that Adams recruited Le'Veon Bell and said, hey, come here and win with me. And that's the other part of this leadership thing. When he got here, he said he's a leader. He's going to change the culture. He's going to help turn things around. And then after two and a half years, decided that he'd had enough of losing and he needed to get out of town. And so he couldn't handle the fact that for the first time in his life, he hadn't picked where he went to play. And the team that he was on was bad. And he looked and saw that he had this challenge ahead of him of trying to help turn around this bad team. And so he took the easy road. He said, trade me to a good team. Now, if there was any team on that list that he put out there that wasn't a great team or at least a team that had a chance at the Super Bowl, then I could understand, okay, Jamal wants to be close to home or he wants to do this, he wants to do that. He demanded to be traded to a Super Bowl contending team. He was taking the easy way out. That doesn't seem like a culture changer or a true leader or a guy who's going to turn things around to me. Okay, this is what I'll say is that you talk to any general manager who was a, a general manager three years ago, any talent evaluator, uh, I mean, those are the guys who dealt, deal with the college prospects, so not necessarily the NFL coaches because they don't really get involved until the end of the process. But if you talk to any of those guys, the guys who were digging deep uh, three years ago when Jamal Adams was coming out of LSU, uh, he, I would say the consensus among the, that group that I'm talking about, you know, the high-level talent evaluators mm-hmm. and the general managers, uh, Jamal Adams was the cleanest prospect coming out of that draft. Sure. Uh, he, he had never gotten in any trouble off mm-hmm. the field. He was beloved at LSU as mm-hmm. a leader. Uh, you know, culture changer is a, you know, that's something more about, you know, going from college to the pros. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was, you know, a beloved figure in that, in that, uh, in that program still is at LSU. Uh, never got in any kind of trouble whatsoever. Never had any issues. Did not like losing, absolutely, when he sure. came to the Jets. Never had one issue with Todd Bowles amidst all the losing. Uh, I think because he, he saw, you know, Todd Bowles is a principled guy, a really good defensive coach, and Jamal is a, a defensive player. So he had a lot of respect for for Todd Bowles. Uh, 
So the losing, I mean, he hated the losing. It was pretty obvious. And I think he's made that abundantly clear yeah. that he hates losing. So that's not, you know, that's not a secret. I think that, you know, when you brought up Le'Veon Bell, let's just be honest about it. I mean, Le'Veon Bell came to the New York Jets because they paid him more, considerably more than anybody else uh, in the league would have paid him. He would have uh, loved the Raiders if they paid him. Uh, that being said, you are absolutely right that Jamal, uh, you know, quote unquote, recruited uh, Le'Veon Bell. That being, uh, Le'Veon Bell didn't come to the Jets because of that recruitment. I think no. he appreciated that. Sure. He absolutely did. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that Le'Veon Bell's agent and Jamal Adams' agents are, are really good friends. I think that was the initial link. Uh, but all of that being said, uh, <laughs> a lot of time has passed since that, even though it's only been a year. Uh, Jamal Adams had never played for, for Adam Gase before. He didn't know what the dynamic was going to be. And uh, and he was making was was he making three and a half million dollars? Le'Veon Bell got his money. So so Jamal Adams leads to a better scenario. I'm pretty sure. And again, I can't get into Le'Veon's head uh, about this, so I can't say definitively. But just you know, my perspective on this is that uh, look, he came to the Jets because he got paid. Uh, uh, Jamal said, hey, come to us, we'll change things around, we'll win. He got into the situation, he saw that, hey, you know, you're not going to win with Adam Gase. It's not going to happen. Uh, and so he left. And now Le'Veon Bell is stuck playing for a head coach that uh, he probably wish he weren't playing for. But he can't go anywhere because the team can't trade him. The team would love to trade him, but they mm-hmm. can't because there's not another team out there in the league that will pay him $14 million this year, just like there isn't another team in the league that wanted to assume his – contract at the trade deadline last year when they wanted to trade him and Le'Veon Bell sat out an entire season because he didn't think he was getting paid what he was worth in Pittsburgh so he's not willing to amend his contract right now to take less money to go elsewhere so he's kind of in a pickle if you will I mean he's a multimillionaire, so <laughs> right. it's hard to feel really sorry for these guys but you know he's in a pickle because he wants the 14 million that he's getting from the Jets but he wants to be in a better situation. He wants to be in, in a Seattle situation, you know, since we're talking about Jamal. So he feels, uh, you know, I guess betrayed is too strong of a word. But, you know, he, he's not particularly pleased because this is a guy who said, hey, come with me. And now that guy's gone and Le'Veon's still stuck in this terrible situation. So I think those guys, you know, have a good relationship. Uh, again, it's very difficult to, for me to relate to 20-somethings uh, going back and forth on, on Twitter when they could just easily pick up the phone mm-hmm. and talk to each other or text each other privately. Uh, you know, I don't think there's – and, you know, maybe I'm wrong, and, you know, we'll find this out over time, but I don't think there's any – like there's going to be any kind of long-term feud between Jamal Adams and uh, Le'Veon Bell. And look, I, maybe there will be. I'm just, I, I don't think so. I think it's two guys in their 20s kind of got caught up in a little back and forth one night on Twitter – uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe it is some deep-seated hatred, but you know, my sense is that, that it's not. Let's talk about Adam Gase a little bit. I have no doubt that Jamal Adams didn't like Adam Gase, or at least didn't love him. But it is interesting that the first we heard of him actually publicly saying anything was a few days before he got traded is when he started to come out and really strongly ridicule Adam Gase. Before that, he had said stuff publicly about Joe Douglas, but never Adam Gase. The timing seems convenient to me. It feels like, in a lot of ways, he was using Gase as a scapegoat because he knows he's unpopular with the Jets fan base. 
but also because it was one of those situations where he was trying to do everything he could to try and get out of this. And it goes back again to what I was saying about being a leader. I think if he had handled this differently, if he had gone to Joe Douglas behind the scenes and said, listen, here's the deal, Joe. I'm about to finish the third year of my rookie deal, and I recognize that you've got me for two more years, and then you can franchise me for a third. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I don't like where this franchise is headed right now. I don't think Gase is the right guy for this job, and so I'm just serving you warning. If I don't think that this is going in the right direction when I come up as a free agent, I'm out of here. So do with that information what you will. Build a good roster around me. Try to convince me to stay. Or if you want to trade me, go ahead and trade me. If you feel like that's in your best interest, I'm more than open to trades. Here's a list of teams I'd prefer to go to. I'm not demanding a trade. I'm just letting you know how it is. I want this ship righted. And if Gase isn't the right guy, I want him out of here. I want better players around me. I want to feel like I'm part of an organization that wants to win and has a clear plan. And if I don't see that, I will leave when my contract is up. If he had done something like that, then I think there would be a whole different situation here. But again, it just feels like a guy who is running away from a challenge because he didn't want to be on a losing team. And instead of finishing out his contract or doing what I just said and going to Douglas and saying something like that, he pouted and pouted to try and get out of here, which includes attacking Adam Gase for the first time as he's doing everything he can to try and get traded. And again, I don't want this to come off as me defending Gase or saying that Jamal actually loved Gase and was only doing this because he wanted to get out of here. I think he didn't like Gase, but he purposely played into that to a large degree because he knew it was something that would ruffle the Jets' hierarchy's feathers and it was something that would land well with the Jets' fan base who doesn't like Adam Gase to begin with. Well, this is what I'll say. Uh... Jamal Adams has not, uh, he has not had a lot of respect for, really much of any respect for Adam Gase for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So even though he publicly said it to me uh, the day before he was traded, uh, he has felt that way for a, for a very long time. And, uh, it's not a secret in the building that, uh, he and many others have felt that way about the head coach for a very long time. But again, Mm -hmm. as I said, uh, as I said earlier, it's difficult. It's difficult for a player to, to criticize a head coach, uh, it's, it's extremely rare. And we really only have to be in a position like Jamal Adams, like a superstar player, to, to even like, really consider doing that because so many other guys are, you know, who are lesser players uh, you know, worry about consequences, whether they're going to get cut and sure. you know, all, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, his uh, opinion about Gase is, you know, is something that he had believed for uh, a very long time. And, it's ter- and as far as talking to Joe Douglas about Gase not being the right guy, Without getting into too many details, I can tell you that Jamal did very similar things to what you kind of just suggested. Uh, and you also have to consider, however, that uh, that uh, Joe Douglas was not the general manager when Adam Gase was hired. Uh, it was a different regime. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say that Jamal Adams made his opinions about, uh, you know, certain things uh, in terms of coaching, head coaching and all that stuff. I think he, he made his opinions known behind the scenes. Oh, I have no doubt about that, but what I'm saying is if Gase was really that much of a problem for him and if he really wanted to stay and try and work something out, like I said, not just Gase, but just going to Douglas and saying, look, here's what I want to see over the next couple of years if you want me to stay here and sign an extension 
I want to see that you're going in the right direction. And like I said, I want the right coach. I want the right players around me, so on and so forth. The fact that he was going and trying to engineer a trade around the trade deadline tells me that that's not really what he was interested in. He had given up on the Jets being anything and just wanted to get out of here and go to a contender where he thought he could win. I understand wanting to play for a winner. Believe me, like you said, Jamal Adams wants to win and that's a good quality. But running from adversity is a whole different story than playing for a bad team, your contract is up and then you go. Or even just telling the team, look, when my contract is up, I'm not going to resign. So if you want to trade me, go ahead and do that. Totally different scenario there. I think also with everything that happened with Joe Douglas, we get Jamal's side of the story, we get Joe Douglas' side of the story, and you kind of have to piece it together and figure out what you believe. Joe Douglas did say his plan was to make Jamal a Jet for life, but he didn't publicly say that he planned to make that happen this offseason or that there was an offer forthcoming right now. Plus, obviously, we know everything that went down. He had his hands full with the draft. He had his hands full with free agency. And then Corona hit. And then you have the fact that, as you've mentioned many times, Manish, the Jets are cash-strapped right now and the cap's going down. We don't know exactly what the situation is going to be money-wise. So even if Douglas's intention was to try and work something out this offseason, which we don't know for sure, plans may have changed. Now, he says that Douglas didn't properly communicate this to him. Douglas says that he did. We can't possibly know for sure, but at this point, it's more or less a he said, she said, and you kind of have to figure out whose story makes more sense to you. Right. Now, uh, let me just touch on the communication. Now, I do want to get to the cash flow uh, element to this. Uh, you know, without, obviously, divulging where I get information from, uh, I can tell you that uh, Joe Douglas could have done a better job communicating. Uh, this is not uh, this is not from the Jamal Adams side, but I can tell you that Joe Douglas could have absolutely done a better job communicating. Joe is inexperienced in contract negotiations. Now he's made trades in the draft. He made trades last year. Uh, you know, Demarius and New England comes to mind. Uh, he has not been particularly good in contract negotiations you know, based on the information that I have uh, been given. And when I say not good, I guess I should clarify by saying his, you know, his communication needs to improve. It's, it's not clear, it's not concise, and it is on some level understandable because he really had no experience doing any of that prior to him getting the job as a Jets general manager. His you know, strong suit is scouting players uh, and uh, you know, college players, uh, pro players, uh, that's where he's comfortable. That's really where he spent the you know the better part of a you know decade and a half, two decades. Uh, negotiation negotiations uh, in you know in, of a high stakes caliber uh, are difficult. I mean, not everybody can do it. I mean, I'm sure fans think they can do it. I'm you know I'm sure reporters think that they that they can do it. Mm-hmm. But there's a nuance to it. There's a there's a right way of handling things mm-hmm. as well. And I just think that he was learning on the job this offseason when it came to the contract negotiations. A uh, big part of that is clear communication. And uh, I, I don't believe uh, that he communicated clearly. I would respectfully disagree with him on this one. Uh, you know, I'm rather certain, uh, again, this is not coming from Jamal Adams' side, but I'm rather certain that uh, the, there was not clear communication uh, on Joe Douglas's part. Uh, and again, it's an experience. I would, that's how I will chalk it up to, you know, I will chalk it up to inexperience. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a major 
major negotiation that he's working with, uh, as I said earlier, a franchise-altering negotiation that ultimately ended in a trade. But, the, you know, the contract element of it, I think that's something that, you know, hopefully for Jet fans, he will get better over time. Uh, but I do want to shift to the cash flow element of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, ownership made it clear to uh, Joe Douglas long before any of us were aware of the pandemic that there was going to be a tight budget this year for them. Now, they have told him that uh, that budget won't be uh, as tight. I, I don't have the exact numbers, so I couldn't tell you precisely what the budget will be next year. Uh, but prior to any of us knowing about what COVID-19 was, Joe Douglas knew that he was going to operate on a tight budget this off season. And he also knew that he had to fill a lot of holes. The Jets had over 20 free agents, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. So given that you don't have that much money to spend and you have a lot of holes to fill, uh, what are you going to do? You're obviously going to sign guys to short-term deals, uh, you know, relatively low-cost deals. And that's essentially what Joe Douglas did. He signed a bunch of people to one-year contracts, uh, a few guys to technically three-year contracts, but they were de facto one-year contracts because there's an easy escape hatch for the team after the first year. Uh, you know, second and third tier free agents for the most part, right? He, he, he didn't land the big fish in free agency, and that was driven by the fact that he didn't have a lot of money from ownership. He didn't, you know, he, he did not have those resources, and he had a lot of holes to fill. So he did what he could. You know, he tried to be as creative as he could, you know, given those constraints. Uh, and, you know, time will tell how well he did. I don't, I don't know how well he did because none of these players have played for the Jets. I, I mean, some of these guys will. Uh, and undoubtedly disappoint, and some of these guys will uh, do well. We'll just find out who and how many, you know, over the course of this season. But, uh, you know, I want to address it. Uh, I, I don't like name dropping, but I did have somebody who religiously listens to this podcast. His name is Dave Wittenberg. He sent me an email. He wanted me to go into detail about the cash flow. He specifically asked me about whether this cash flow issue is going to be just a 2020 thing mm-hmm. or if it's going to carry over to 2021. And again, before the pandemic hit, uh, Joe Douglas was under the impression that he would have more opportunity to spend more money next offseason, but this year was going to be tight. And I can't tell you why the Johnsons told him that. I don't know why they would give him those restrictions this year, but I just know that that was what Joe Douglas was operating under. And obviously, if you don't have that much money to spend on free agents, you're certainly not going to have a lot of uh, big-time cash to give Jamal Adams Mm -hmm. an extension. Which is exactly what I was saying. I think that perhaps Joe Douglas' plan was to try and keep Jamal Adams here, but the decision as to whether or not to pay him now was really out of his hands. But I want to talk about the loyalty thing too, Manish, because obviously we know that Jamal said that Joe Douglas questioned his loyalty and his love of football. Now, this is Jamal Adams' side of this story. We don't know exactly what was said beyond that because Joe Douglas hasn't spoken about exactly what he said. I can't speak to the love of football thing because what I will say is if Joe Douglas said that to him, it is wrong because I don't think anybody questions Jamal Adams' love of football. I don't know if he did say it, but if he did, I think that that was a bad thing to say. But as far as loyalty, I don't think it's out of line at all to question his loyalty to the team because here's a guy that was pouting around the trade deadline all upset, at least publicly, that they had quote-unquote shopped him. He said he wanted to go to Dallas. Then he was tweeting stuff in the offseason. And then he goes out and says more stuff on social media. So at a certain point, if you are Jets brass, you have to think to yourself, 
does this guy actually want to be here for the long haul? I think that's a very legitimate question. And like you said, he had vocalized his concerns, and we know he's somebody that doesn't like losing. So if you're the Jets, you have to think to yourself, as you alluded to before, this team has a ton of holes to fill. They have limited resources to do it. If Jamal Adams isn't somebody that really wants to be here for the long haul, is it wise to pay him $18 million or whatever it was going to cost to keep him here on a long-term deal when A, you could use those resources elsewhere, and B, he seems to not actually really want to be here. So I totally understand if Joe Douglas had mentioned something about, let's play this out and see if you actually still want to be here in 2021. It's really fascinating because I, mean, I I do see there's like there's not two sides there's like twenty sides to this entire you know <laughs> saga between the player and and the uh, the organization. Uh, this is how I view it. I view it like uh, how does it get to this point? It's so unfortunate, really, uh, mm-hmm. that it got to this point. Of course, just given how popular Jamal was, how productive he was for three seasons. Uh, you know, I, I look at it like uh, Joe Douglas did what he needed to do to get the best compensation he could for a player he didn't want to trade, partly because of the mess that he helped create. That being said, it's not as if I'm absolving, and I I apologize if that's how it's come across, but it's not as if I'm absolving Jamal Adams of any blame. I think there's plenty of blame to go around uh, to a number of different people. It's just I think the debate – is how much blame? How much blame does Douglas deserve? How much blame does uh, Jamal Adams deserve? How much blame does Adam Gase deserve? I mean, that, that to me is where the you know the debate comes in. Uh, I, I, you know, we, you know, honestly, Scott, you and I could talk about this like for the next five days. <laughs> I, I, I really think it's a sad it, it's it's a sad situation. I mean, sad relatively speaking when it comes to sports. Uh, probably unfortunate is the better word. It's so unfortunate. I, I just, you know, I, I just kind of remember thinking how this guy was viewed uh, over the last, over the over the first three years of his career. And you know, we talked about the the trade deadline. And I think that Jamal, you know, he's such an emotional person. I think, you know, he wanted so badly to turn things around for the Jets that he was so hurt that the organization didn't give him the, you know, the we're not trading you. You're the you're untouchable treatment. I think he was so hurt by that because he put in so much of who he was as a player and a person to the organization that it hurt him at the core that the organization would engage in conversations to potentially uh, divorce themselves, essentially, of him. And, and that's, I think, what he couldn't ultimately get his mind around. He couldn't wrap his mind around that, and that really stung him. And uh, I think some of that subsided over the, the remaining you know six or so weeks of the season after the trade deadline, but then... Uh, he was, you know, vigil- he was kind of on high alert when the season ended, and so, uh, you know, when he perceived things weren't, uh, the team wasn't being true to its word, that Joe wasn't being true to his word, uh, you know, it, it just kind of started to build more and more mistrust to, to the point that eventually just cracked, and then when it cracked, you know, you saw him on social media doing things that really did not sit well with a lot of fans on social media. I can't really speak to the entire fan base. I think that a lot of the times, you know, people who are on Twitter a lot, and I have to be on Twitter a lot because of my job. I know that you're, you know, you, you, you monitor it as well. But it's very difficult sometimes to, to kind of, you know, 
realize I mean, what what part of the fan base are we talking here? They, you know, it's, it's a younger part of the fan base, probably a passionate part of the fan base, but there are a, a ton of Jet fans who are not on social media or just casual observers, and they drop in every now and then. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not friends personally with Jet fans, but I'm friends with of, of people who are fans of different teams, and none of those guys that I'm friends with, and I'm talking like you know, 15, 20 guys. Uh, none of them really pay attention to Twitter except, to be honest with you, except like on Sunday morning when you know they want injury updates for their fantasy teams. I mean that's kind of how it is. They're not glued to Twitter. They have you know they have families, they have lives, uh, you know. So I don't really know, you know how much of the fan base loves Jamal, how much hates Jamal because of what's going on. I just kind of know what I see on Twitter, and I don't really know how representative that is of the fan base at large. As far as whether or not Joe Douglas broke his word, again, we know that Joe Douglas said he never gave his word as far as a new contract, at least not now. So it comes down to a he said, he said here, and we'll have to figure out for ourselves who we actually believe on that one. The last thing I wanted to talk about was the compensation, though, Manish. I think that even if Jamal Adams had never asked for a trade and he was happy as a clam, if the Seahawks ultimately made this offer to Joe Douglas, there's just no way he'd be able to turn it down. And a big part of the reason for that is because this team needs a lot of help. They really are in low-key rebuild. A lot of that has to do with how poorly the roster was constructed for the years that Mike McCagnin was here. And it left Douglas in a position where he was going to have a lot of trouble really remaking this roster in a reasonable period of time. And so if he was able to get this insane haul for Jamal Adams for a safety, we all know how Joe Douglas views positions. You talked about in the past how Joe Douglas would not have given Le'Veon Bell the contract that he got and that he wouldn't have given C.J. Mosley the contract that he got, not because he doesn't think they're really good players, but because he doesn't value those positions. I think it's similar with Jamal Adams. I'm not saying he wouldn't have wanted to keep him here, but I think he would have viewed it as, wow, I could get two firsts and a third for this guy. I have to deal him. So... I think that the only reason that Jamal Adams was ultimately traded is because Joe Douglas got exactly what he wanted. Because remember, Adams himself said to you that he was going to be at camp. He was going to play in 2020. So Joe Douglas could have let him play out the season and then sat down with Adams and said, okay, can we work this out? If we can't, then I'll shop you. If we can, then great, let's get something done. I don't think that this is a situation where Jamal Adams kicking and screaming set a precedent. I think Joe Douglas said, look, I don't have to trade this guy, but if you blow me away, I'll consider it. And he got blown away by this. He got a better deal than the Raiders got for Khalil Mack and that the Jaguars got for Jalen Ramsey. So I think that even if Jamal Adams had never said a word, this deal gets done if the offer is made. I will say this, Jamal Adams speaking up and making it known that he wanted out made it easier for teams to pick up the phone and call with some confidence because they realized, oh, maybe I could get this guy if I make this great offer. Whereas if Adams had never said anything, they might have thought, oh, I'm not even going to bother because there's no way that Douglas is going to make this deal. So I think we can both agree that Joe Douglas got an incredible haul for Adams. I think we may disagree on Jamal Adams using leverage because I think that short of this type of deal, Douglas was going to keep him anyway. Well, first, I don't think there's going to be a precedent. I, I agree with uh, with you, and, and Joe said that uh, at his conference call. 
Uh, I don't think there's a precedent, mainly because I don't think you're going to see very many players do this. You also have to have an exceptional player. I mean, mm-hmm. the reason that uh, the Seahawks you know, gave up these picks was because Jamal Adams is a you know a high level player, and and you know for unfortunately for the Jets franchise, they haven't had players like Jamal Adams come along very often. So I, I don't think this is going to be uh, you know any kind of precedent setting situation where if you voice your displeasure publicly. Uh, it's going to give you a one-way ticket out of here. I, so you know, I, I, I don't believe that at all. So, uh, so let's, you know, let's, I think we can probably agree on that. Probably put that to bed. Uh, the hall on paper is very good. The hall on paper is very good. Uh, I also don't know off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, I think those deals are still pending. Uh, I don't think they're completed yet. But the the first round picks that uh, were involved in the Mac deal and uh, the Jalen Ramsey deal. Uh, we also don't know what the, where the first-round picks are actually going to land in the mm-hmm. Seattle deal. We're assuming that Seattle is going to be good. Uh, I guess you can, you know, make a mistake in assuming that, but like just logically speaking, typically the uh, Seattle picks, you know, in the mid 20s, somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So uh, I look at it this way: the third and fourth-round picks, it's it's really not that big of a deal. I think there's maybe a 10 or 15. It'll probably end up being a 10 or 15 uh, slot difference in those in those picks. So let, let's just focus on. The uh, the first two rounds, uh, sorry, the first uh, the two first round picks. Uh, I am of the belief, in order for the Jets to win the trade, which again I don't think we're going to really know for years, but uh, you know, just operating under a simple assumption that these trade these picks aren't going to be flipped or used in other deals, and we can't really honestly say uh, that that's going to happen because Joe Douglas has flipped picks. We saw that in the draft; mm-hmm. he's gotten picks in in one deal and used those picks to move. So it can get very complicated pretty quickly. Sure. But just for purposes of this discussion, if we just assume that the Jets hold on to these two picks, I think you need two Pro Bowl players for the Jets to win this uh, to win this trade. And if we're, in order for it to be a stalemate or a tie, if you will, uh, one of those two first-rounders has to be an all-pro all caliber player. But in order for the Jets to win the trade, ultimately when we look back and talk about this and do this podcast, Scott, 10 years from now, uh, <laughs> and we, we examine this trade – and we assume that Jamal Adams continues on this track and continues being, you know, an elite level player for the next handful of years, you know, five five years or so, whatever, before he turns 30. I think that in order for the Jets to win the, the, the deal, they have to land two Pro Bowl players. That's hard to do. It's hard to do regardless of when you're picking. It's certainly hard to do if you're picking 23rd, 24th, 25th, later than that. Uh, so uh, as Joe Douglas said, look, the, look, the, the onus is on him. He's, he's got to hit these picks. These, these picks got to land. We're not going to know if he if he lands these picks. Frankly, we're not going to know if he's going to be around uh, when we determine whether he landed these picks in twenty twenty four or whenever. Uh, uh, nobody knows. I mean, it's too much uncertainty, too many factors at play. So, uh, you know, he's got an opportunity, and I think that's what we can we can all agree on. It uh, we can agree or disagree on whether it was smart to trade Jamal. The point is, Jamal's not on the team anymore. Uh, but these draft picks are property of the New York Jets and currently property of this general manager. So he has an enormous opportunity. It's really a, a dream scenario in some respects when you look at it in a vacuum. Now, clearly, the Jets are going to take a step backward, at least on paper in 2020. Sure. You, can't, you, know, you, you can't just take Jamal out of the equation and say, oh, everything's going to be fine. I mean, obviously, Adam Gase and, and Joe Douglas – are going to try to spin it that way, but you know any rational person would tell you you know they're going to be worse off defensively in all likelihood without Jamal Adams. But uh, but this is a dream scenario in a vacuum for any general manager to have four first round picks in the next two years 
to have, I believe, five picks in the first three rounds next year. Uh, you can flip your team very quickly if you make the right moves. I mean, we'll see what happens with the Dolphins, but they had a boatload of picks this past year. I have no idea if these guys are going to be good, but there was a great opportunity for Christopher Greer and for Brian Flores to reshape the roster and reshape it pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that excites uh, Joe Douglas. I'm sure it excites the, the front office. So there is opportunity there. We'll see if ultimately he capitalizes on it. But, uh, you know, I'm sure he's thinking right now, I did not want to trade Jamal Adams. I can't go back in time. It doesn't really matter. Now I've got all these draft picks. Uh, unfortunately for him, I don't know how the scouting is going to work this year because I don't know if there's going to be a college football season. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm sure – you know, I'm sure he's you know, thinking this is such an awesome opportunity for me to reset the foundation. What I will say, Scott, uh, I know I've talked a lot here, but what I will say is that uh, you know, sooner or later the Jets have to focus on the present. We've heard so much about the future. I feel like they've always marginalized the present. It's always about looking forward to the promise of tomorrow. Uh, you know, We're nine years running here without making the playoffs. Uh, we're, what, 50-plus years uh, without winning a Super Bowl. Sooner or later, the focus has to be on today and not always on tomorrow. I think that they don't necessarily have to hit on both players in terms of them being pro bowlers in order to necessarily win or have a stalemate with this trade. Because remember, what they are getting are two guys, if they keep those picks, because like you said, this could get complicated. But just going under the assumption that they keep these picks, they're going to get two guys that will be under cheap team control for five years. So if they get two good players, they don't have to be great, but good players at important positions. So let's just say they get a tackle or a guard who turns out to be a really good five to ten year starter, or they get an edge rusher who turns out to be a pretty good five to ten year starter at a bargain basement price, as opposed to paying Jamal Adams $18 million a year or whatever it's going to take to sign him long term. I think at that point you can say that the Jets at the very least pushed on the deal and probably won it just because of the opportunity cost but like you said more importantly Manish what this really does is it gives Joe Douglas a chance and the truth is the only reason that it made logical sense to trade Jamal Adams regardless of all the drama I'm talking about just moving him is because of the mess that Mike McCagnin left this roster was in shambles And Joe Douglas had a rebuilding task ahead of him, whether he wants to call it that publicly or not. We all know that's really what's going on here. And the only way to really realistically give himself a chance to turn this thing around was to make a deal like this. And the only bullet he had in his gun was Jamal Adams. So when he got an offer like this, drama or no, it made sense to do that. Because with Jamal Adams, as great as he is, the Jets were only going to go so far especially with the resources that Douglas had at his disposal. But now they at least have a fighting chance. If Joe Douglas does this right, the Jets are going to be headed in the right direction. If he doesn't, he'll be fired and it'll be on to the next guy. But at least Joe Douglas gave himself a chance to succeed now. This offseason, or next offseason I should say, next offseason is going to be fascinating on so many levels because if we operate under the assumption and look we don't exactly know what's going to happen it's such a weird year weird things are probably going to happen but if the jets miss the playoffs for a 10th consecutive season and second consecutive season with adam gase i'm fascinated to see what woody johnson is going to do at the head coaching position is he going to keep gase because if you keep gase and you keep 
uh, you're obviously going to keep uh, Joe Douglas. At that point, you're you're almost you know, you're almost in a position as, as own, at ownership as saying, okay, you know, Gase and and uh, and Douglas are tied at the hip. I, I know that Joe Douglas has the longer contract, but it would be really odd, I think, to keep Gase for a third season and then hit the reset button in 2022 while keeping Joe Douglas and then having Joe Douglas hire his new head coach. Because if you're going to do that, then you really got to be fair to Douglas and give him at least two years with the new head coach. And that would mean that you know, you, you've kept Douglas for a long time. And if he's disappointing, it's, it, it almost feels like if they underachieve or they don't make the playoffs this year, you're better off hitting the reset button in 2021 with Joe Douglas and saying, okay, Joe, hire your own head coach. The clock starts for you in 2021. You and your head coach that you hire are tied at the hip, and then you give those guys at least two years, see what happens. It, it just seems odd if you keep Gase after this season, then at that point you're going to fire Gase and Douglas at the same time beyond that. I, I just don't understand like delaying and keeping Gase a third year and then allowing Joe Douglas to hire his own head coach. I always believe that the GM should get an opportunity to hire their own head coach. Otherwise, you're kind of doing a disservice uh, to the GM. This is an unusual situation because the head coach essentially hired uh, Joe Douglas uh, because of their past relationship. But I almost kind of feel like if the team underachieves this year, you, you pull the plug, you've got all this draft capital beginning in 2021, so you allow Joe Douglas and the head coach that Joe Douglas picks to move forward with all that draft capital. It's going to be a very interesting year for Adam Gase. This is make or break, not only for Sam Darnold, but for him as well. If he doesn't step it up this year, I think there's a very good chance that exactly what you outline is what's going to happen, that Adam Gase is gone and the Jets are looking for a new head coach at the end of the 2020 season. He has a chance to put his stamp on this team and turn things around and make people come around on him, people that are very skeptical, but... He's got to get it done, and right now the clock is ticking on him, I think. If he doesn't get it done, this is probably going to be the end of the road for him. Manish Mehta covering the Jets for the New York Daily News. Thanks so much for coming on. This was a two-parter this week. Wow, for the first time in a while, so much to talk about. I love it. For everybody that's looking to read your work in the Daily News, we talked about this yesterday, tons of stuff about Jamal Adams. There's tons of stuff, I'm sure, about where the Jets are going now. I'm sure you're going to talk a lot about Sam Darnold and have some camp previews as we get closer and closer. Talk a little bit about what you got planned. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously the focus uh, in this weird offseason where they don't even practice for another couple of weeks, uh, the focus for me will probably be Sam Darnold, some, you know, Sam Darnold, uh, Le'Veon Bell, uh, and this team doesn't have very many stars or potential stars. So, uh, you know, just like uh, the teams, you know, who have to go and navigate through this weird, uh, you know, run up to the season, you know, they're going to have to be creative. And I think uh, the reporters covering the team are going to have to be creative as well. There's no question about that. There's going to have to be a lot of creativity going on all throughout the NFL as we see people trying to figure out how this season is going to work. So fingers crossed everything ends up going off without a hitch. Make sure that you're reading Manish in the Daily News and following him on Twitter. If you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could go ahead and do that for us, really appreciate it. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. Doesn't take you much time, doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you could go ahead and do that for us, we would be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and Turn on the Jets 
Dot com.